Welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, October 6, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Broadway Radio is brought to you today by listeners like you. Patrons who support us at patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. There's many different ways to support Broadway Radio, so get over to patreon.com slash Broadway Radio to support us today. So, Michael, Peter, and I got over to the Vivian Beaumont to see The Great Society. So, Peter, why don't you get us started off on this LBJ play? Well, the thing is, so many people have said, oh, you know, the problem with this play is it takes on so many subjects. And, you know, there it is. Um, if, if only they'd concentrate on one aspect of what was going on during the LBJ presidency, be it um, civil rights, be it the Vietnam War, uh, be it voting rights, anything like that. If they concentrated on one thing, then indeed it would be a substantially better play. I took something very different from this play, and uh, to put it very succinctly, if it isn't one thing, it's another. This really showed me, uh, not that I didn't know this before, but it showed me how hard it is to be president, that no sooner does somebody come in complaining about one thing than somebody comes in complaining about another thing. And juggling all these balls are really, really, that that makes for a very hard uh, job. So... um, that's why I like the play so much, because um, the harassment issues, um, people waiting outside to see you, putting people off, having them come in, eventually having them come in. Um, all this busy, busy, busy stuff is what really came through for me. So I like the play substantially. There are a number of things about the play that were very unnerving. And the fact that in a way we haven't come a long way in uh, 50 years, there were lines that really resonated to me. Uh, the South doesn't need any excuse to beat Negro. Martin Luther King said that. Stokely Carmichael saying they'll find a way to prevent black voting. And uh, LBJ saying racism has become respectable. So mm, uh, paying for a war um, as opposed to combating poverty, because it really seemed that LBJ really wanted to do the right thing, that he did want a great society. But the money that he wanted to go to the cities um, for for uh, to combat poverty, unfortunately, um, went to the Vietnam War. Now, you might say, well, that's his own fault, and I understand that point of view, too. But, um, yeah, again, no easy uh, solutions here, no easy issues. Uh, when he said, uh, when LBJ said, it's like being in the middle of a hailstorm, you stay there and take it. By that point in the play, I really felt that that was um, <clears throat> quite accurate. There are some very touching scenes. There's a very touching scene involving his secretary. Mm. We've come somewhat to know, and I like that scene very, very much. I'm not going to be uh, too specific on that to give too much away, but um, but I think that that um, is, is a very effective scene. And there's a very effective scene late in the play with his wife, Lady Bird. I was wondering if she was going to have anything to do because for most of the time she was just sitting in the background – um, granted, a lot of presidents' wives do, and that's uh, their role. I mean, we remember Pat Nixon, um, you know, just standing there and smiling with the same smile we saw for so many years. So, so um, there, there is a bit of profanity in the play because um, Johnson was known to be profane. Um, so there's that too, but there's plenty of dramatic irony here as well. Um, For those who don't know what dramatic irony is, that's when the audience knows something that the characters don't. And Martin Luther King says at one point, somebody is going to get seriously injured or worse. And of course, we know um, who got worse. Um, There's a scene um, on April 4th, 1967, 
that Martin Luther King was giving in New York at the Riverside Church. And those who know he died literally one year to the day later, I think we'll get a chill. Um, what a what a workload this must have been for the playwright, uh, Robert Schenken, uh, who I admired. And his Kentucky Cycle, I really felt, was a play that was totally unappreciated way back when. Um, so he's a terrific writer. And, of course, he did write All the Way. And this is a, a, a sort of sequel to All the Way. But he and Bill Rausch, the director, a terrific director and a great guy, by the way, um, what a workload this is because making sure that you had so many people doubling, I mean, there are dozens of doubling situations and I mean, costume and wig changes. And I will say that um, getting actors in multiple roles is always daunting, but here more so because the performers would be portraying real people that many in the Lincoln Center audience uh, will remember from their youth. And I will admit, that very few people, including Brian Cox's LBJ, look like the people they're playing. Uh, very few, very few indeed. Um, but they do their best, and I think uh, David Garrison, um, who uh, doesn't <laughs> resemble Nixon, um, uh, the actress playing next to him, uh, who played Pat, is the way I knew that he was Nixon before he started speaking. So um, I, I think Bryce Pinkham does a very good Boston accent as uh, Bobby Kennedy. And remember, I come from Boston. So uh, <laughs> um, and uh, Mark Kudish is very good in a number of roles, too. But um, we do see that frustration over Vietnam makes him make some very bad decisions. But there he is. He's trying his best to voting rights, civil rights. Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff. He's trying. And you wind up having sympathy for this guy by the time the play ends. Okay, Michael, what did you think? Well, I agree with everything Peter said about the if it's not one thing, it's another. And I, and I do think that that was a large part of the playwright's intention. That said, I, I do think that the play would have benefited from tighter focus. Uh, I looked it up and all the way, um, the, you know, the previous Schenken play about LBJ uh, – covered the period only from November 1963 to November 1964, so one one calendar year, uh, whereas The Great Society brings us from 65 through 68. And so first of all, the um, the amount of time covered is considerably greater, but also the, the events. Uh, I, I do think it was um, wise. I mean, I felt like it focused mainly on mainly on two things, civil rights, uh, because the voting rights is, is, is part of that also, of course, um, uh, as one thing. And then the escalation of the war in Vietnam, um, you know, so I guess these are two of the biggest tragedies in, in, in American history. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the civil rights in terms of the, uh, the fact that the movement was necessary in the first place because we had slavery uh, for hundreds of years. So uh, I, th I think that any play about LBJ would have been, you know, very obviously incomplete if it didn't focus on those two things. But that said, I, I, I think more specifically, uh, if some content and maybe some characters had been left out, I, uh, I, there's a aside from the cast list in the playbill. There's a, a separate card uh, that James noticed first uh, that gives all of the uh, all of the characters, the people who play them, and also the characters' functions in the story, uh, and that I, I'm going to just speed through the all of the characters. I'm not even going to read the actors' names because even if I just read those, it will add <laughs> to the the length of this. But okay, here we go. Ready? Lyndon B. Johnson, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Hubert Humphrey, Doctor James Z. Appel, Richard Daly, General Earl Wheeler, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, Senator Everett Dirksen, Carthy Deke Deloche, Colonel Al Lingo, Clark Clifford, J. Edgar Hoover, Stokely Carmichael, John Lewis, Adam Walensky, General William Westmoreland, Seymour Trammell, Stanley Levison, 
Gardner Ackley, Lady Bird Johnson, Richard Nixon, Governor George Wallace, Sheriff Jim Clark, Norman Morrison, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Reverend Al- Adam Clayton Powell, James Bevel, Jimmy Lee Jackson, Pat Nixon, Robert McNamara, Rep. Wilbur Mills, Coretta Scott King, Sally Childress, Bob Moses, Re- Reverend James Dobinas, Hosea Williams, and Marquette Fry. So I, I think that I kind of felt maybe it's a point of pride with Schenken that he was trying to kind of check all the boxes uh, so that no one in the audience would say, hey, where was so-and-so? Uh, you know, I, I miss seeing so-and-so. But I, I, I really do think the play would have been improved if he had been a little more um, selective in terms of that. And, and really, I, I did get the feeling that they were speeding through in lots of places to get this done in a, a reasonable running time. And also, I felt there was a lot of yelling uh, because uh, I guess in an attempt to make the um, to you know to make the uh, the dialogue as interesting as possible because it is a, it's it's all, it's all politics and it was very compelling uh, I you know I mean I find all of these issues very interesting and the way LBJ found himself in the middle of them and trying to get out but there are places where it's really almost like. Um, <laughs> it's almost like Wikipedia or a Cliff Notes thing. I, I noticed right after the start of the play, literally within five minutes, ABJ, LBJ talks on the phone with Bobby Kennedy and then Adam Clayton Powell, and then he receives Martin Luther King in person in his office, literally within five minutes. Uh, you know, this is the speed at which... Uh, Schenken is moving things along in order to uh, hold our interest. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly understand that if it was a more relaxed pace that it would have risked boredom, but this didn't seem very natural either. Um, and so uh, I, I think that it that it would have been a better play with, uh, with some content and, and several characters eliminated. Um, it's interesting, uh, in all the way, LBJ was played by another Brian, uh, Brian Cranston, uh, who I, you know, who knows if he uh, was just unavailable for this, or perhaps he read the script and didn't think it was as good as the first one. I have absolutely no idea. But it's uh, funny that, uh, you know, it's two Brian's. Uh, Brian Cox, in this show, I thought he, first of all, I thought it was a Herculean task in terms of sheer line memorization. I mean, I, I'm trying to think back, and I, I think he was, not only was he barely ever off stage, but he was, there weren't many times when he wasn't talking. It's absolutely incredible. I did notice, in fairness, that he stumbled a few times, not badly, but a few times. Uh, for that matter, so did some of the other actors. Uh, there's a, an incredible incredible amount of lines lines in this show um it's really just just amazing um his voice uh peter mentioned that that few of the actors look like the historical characters they're portraying and that's true i think the ones who who really nail the portrayals more are those who are successful with the voices such as bryce pinkham who yes did a stellar job with bobby kennedy and um, David Garrison as Nixon. Uh, uh, and I, I don't know, uh, I'm not familiar with the speech patterns necessarily of uh, Mayor Daley of Chicago, but Mark Kudis certainly seemed to do a, an excellent job with him. And, and uh, bravo to Mr. Kudish. He wore a fat suit. Uh, mm. for that yeah, for that yeah. role um he play uh, all, all of these people e- even the two i just mentioned play multiple roles but uh daily was the main role that that kudish played and and he was great it is wonderful to see uh, actors who are known i would say primarily for musical theater being so excellent in straight plays um so i you know i think what what else did i have to say about oh yes um the play, uh, the events are presented in chronological order, and and they are very involving because of the largely because of the events themselves are so monumental and the issues are so so vitally important. But um, there was one very strange thing that happened. We're, we're, we're getting towards the end, and we're in 1968, and obviously uh, up until this point, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy have been you know, fairly prominent characters in, in the narrative. And then suddenly, uh, 
LBJ is um, is leaving office. And I said, well, for heaven's sake, what happened to the assassinations of of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King? And, you know, they did it as a as an afterthought uh, in one of his final speeches. LBJ talks about it. And and we briefly see King and Kennedy once more uh, just saying some final words. But I uh, I mean, I guess I understand why the playwright did it that way, uh, just to speed again, to speed things along. But I think that he really should have taken the, both of those moments because one can only imagine the effect they had on, on Johnson emotionally. Uh, and I, I, that would have been something wonderful for, uh, for Brian Cox to play. So, um, so those are my, uh, those are my criticisms of the, of the show. Uh, oh, one more thing. Um, Brian Cox's accent I thought was fine. I actually just watched a clip of, Johnson's inaugural address from January 20th, 1965, and his accent was less thick than I remembered. So I think that Cox was was good in that respect. Uh, he certainly did not sound um, he's I, he's Scottish, I believe. Uh, he 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 certainly sounded American. He didn't sound Scottish or British or anything like that. But. Um, but one thing that I did remember and was confirmed by the inaugural address is I think that that generally speaking, um, Johnson had a, a very low key, relatively low key, uh, almost folksy way of talking. He he didn't uh, do oratory the way that people like uh, John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King did. Uh, he would not speak in a raised voice. Uh, and if he didn't do it for his inaugural address, I, I you know, I of course, I don't know, but I I, I I don't know if he did it in more private situations. I just I just don't picture him as yelling all the time. So that that really um, did not ring true for me. Uh, anyway, it's it's a very impressive achievement in in many many ways. This production, and of course, it's Lincoln Center. So they. They spent the money in terms of having the cast size that they needed. Uh, it's not an elaborate show in terms of sets or anything like that, but it's it's beautifully staged and costumed and uh, probably, I would say, almost unproducible outside of a uh, institutional theater situation. So, uh, you know, uh, thanks to them for that and and for giving us this flawed but still very worthwhile piece of theater. Well, speaking of flaws, Michael, I'm very disappointed with you for saying J. Edgar Hoover, because anybody who loves Broadway always says J. Edgar Hoover. You know that, you know, so don't let it happen again. (laughs) I'm sorry. I apologize. There you go. So um, my thought about uh, about this show, uh, I kept on reflecting back on Oslo. Um, Mm. And not because it was actually in the same exact space, um, but because they attacked, uh, you know, a biographical and uh, historical piece of information by going very deep into the topic rather Mm -hmm. than with the Great Society where we got a lot of inf- a little information about a lot of different topics and uh, i felt as though that the main two tracks of great society were um the civil rights movement and also vietnam and we kept on going back and forth between scenes of those things and i, I sort of felt like we might have been served better by having two different plays one play on mm the Vietnam era and one play about the civil rights era and going very deep into those things. And rather than compressing the time scale as, as Michael and Peter have pointed out, but by, um, by going very deep into it as they did in Oslo, uh, which I really enjoyed. And I, I enjoyed the great society. I just, it, it left me with, uh, a, a lot of questions that, that seemingly could have been answered, um, as I was walking out of the theater, I mentioned to Michael that um, that this was a very different uh, LBJ than I had thought about mm. and read about in history and in television shows and films. Uh, 
that I felt as though that his um, his character as written in in the Great Society was much more compassionate about civil rights than what I had thought was his his take on civil rights before. I, I felt as though that his take on civil rights was that uh, he, he felt obligated to do it because it was a big marquee of Kennedy. Uh, and that he did that, uh, but he was more invested in the Vietnam thing than in civil rights. But in the play, certainly he seemed to be uh, compassionate to the civil rights thing. And I'm not sure, I, you know, it could be that I was just wrong about that. But again, if they had gone deeper into the civil rights thing, uh, it, but they couldn't because they had to focus on both the Vietnam thing and the civil right. rights thing at the same time. Right. And those two things never really overlapped. You never saw a scene in the civil when they're talking about the civil rights. The civil rights people never referred to what's happening in Vietnam and the Vietnam, uh, the generals and and the people in the Pentagon who are never referred to what's happening in the civil rights thing. Is all those things are happening concurrently? And I. Uh, well, the only thing was, uh, James, there was one scene uh, really towards the end where uh, Martin Luther King uh, sort of made a speech about, about how they were related uh, in terms of, well, primarily because the, so many uh, black people were were being yeah. drafted, you know, sure. as opposed to uh, maybe the a lot of white people who who got out of it. No, uh, absolutely, and also, you're and right. Also, just yeah. right, yeah. So, uh, but it was it was. I I agree with you. It it seemed a little too little too late. Yeah, exactly. So uh, interesting. Uh, uh, and this play um, uh, came via Oregon Shakespeare Theater. Oregon yeah. Shakespeare Festival and um, and it was developed it was developed at Seattle Rep or where was it developed I, I can't remember off the top of my head Ashland but, wasn't it because Bill was um, yeah the artistic that's director right there. I think so it was uh, and then to Lincoln Center so this is a, a huge partnership between the nonprofits on the east and west coasts uh, and as Michael said done here I, I wasn't uh, it seemed like it has a bunch of commercial producers at the beginning of the producerial list. So I wonder if if this was uh, shepherded by a commercial producer. But uh, my other take on this is that uh, it, when you read the press release, and even if you go to their website, uh, it's very much positioned like a film. Mm, yes. So, yes. uh, you know, they do the credits in a, in a way in which is not typically done on Broadway. It's, it's done, it's done like, uh, it's done like a film. If you look at the, the font and everything at Brian Cox in the great society written by Robert <laughs> Schenken and directed by Bill Rowe, um, it, it, it seems very much like a film more than a play. So I, I wonder if we're going to see that as a film sometime in the future, seeing that they did that to the other LBJ show. Uh, so we'll see what happens there. But uh, I thought it was an interesting evening in the theater. This episode is being brought to you by ShowTickets.com. ShowTickets.com is your go-to source for the best deals on Broadway and off-Broadway shows, New York City tours, and more. Right now, you can save over 40% on tickets to see Frozen, 35% on Oklahoma, and Beautiful, the Carol King musical, and 25% on Waitress. Plus, check out our blog for exclusive interview content and stars and creators of Broadway's latest and greatest, as well as dining guys, itineraries, theater news, and more. ShowTickets.com has everything you need to make your next trip to New York City one to remember at prices you'll love. What are you waiting for? Check us out today. Showtickets.com. So let's move forward into the next show here. Peter, you got to see Slave Play over at the Golden Theater, which opens this evening. So tell us what you what did you, what were your thoughts on Slave Play? I'm going to be very quick about this uh, because I talked about Slave Play earlier. Um, so anybody can reference that. But <clears throat> I worry about this play's success on Broadway because we do know that um, much of the Broadway audience is tourist-driven. And I can't imagine tourists coming to this play, not just because of the fact that the title may be off-putting to them, but um, it does deal with uh, sexual matters uh, very, very frankly, uh, very openly, very <laughs> dynamically. Drastically. 
<laughs> very graphically. Yes, indeed. And um, I don't know if this is uh, the tourist idea of a good time. So um, I sometimes I really think the producers bring plays to Broadway because there are so few plays brought to Broadway. You have a good chance of getting a Tony nomination. And then you can brag to people you're looking for in the future. Well, I got a Tony nomination for this play. You might even win sometimes um, because so few straight plays are produced on Broadway. So as a result, um, I really question uh, where this play should be. And um, it, it, it's very well done. It's very effective. It makes a lot of good points. But I'm not sure Broadway is the right arena for it. Okay. So um, I, what I'll do is I'll link back to both Michael and Peter talked about Slave Play on December 9th, 2018 on This Week on Broadway. Uh, and so I will link back to that so you can listen to their comments about Slave Play. And uh, I'm seeing it this week. Uh, Michael, have you got it on your calendar yet? Uh, Friday. Friday? All right. Yes. So uh, we'll mention it again next week and uh, talk a little bit about that. So next up, uh, Michael, you got over to St. Luke's Theater to see a musical about Star Wars. This uh, uh, very interesting title because it's not – well, I'll let you explain it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what what were you going to say? Well, well, the thing is it's not really a musical – it's not a Star Wars musical. It's a musical about Star Wars. See, the, the yes. title's very literal because there has been a Star Wars musical and it was shut down by the Lucas Estate and things like that. And, but, I mean, you, you can explain it. I, I didn't see it. You did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know the history of that other thing. Yeah. But this is uh, – I, I would say that one of the best things about this show is the concept. It's uh, the idea is that these two – uh, what word do we want to use? Nerdy, geeky, <laughs> uh, Star Wars geeks get together and uh, write a musical about Star Wars, and they want to have it produced at Comic Con. <laughs> uh, you know, good luck. But there are all kinds of, as one might imagine, tremendous legal uh, roadblocks in their way. Uh, so they don't uh, get to do it at Comic Con. Instead, they do it at St. Luke's. It's a very <laughs> It's a very meta musical, uh, you know. I mean, if they were doing it in another theater, they would call it that theater. Uh, but it's really, really clever and sweet and funny. Uh, very, very well written by Tom Dangora, and then uh, two, two of the guys who are in it: Taylor Crosor and Scott. Foster, Scott Richard Foster, uh, with music and lyrics by Billy. His na- last name is R E C C E. So I'm not going to. I'll tell yes. you, Reese. He pronounces it Reese. Yeah, Billy oh, thank Reese. You. Yeah. Uh, oh, great. Thank and he's you. a listener. He's a he's a listener to the oh, show. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh well. First of all, one thing I would say is bravo to him because the songs are really delightful. And believe it or not, Peter, I I did not catch one false rhyme. Oh no, he's pretty good at that. Yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, this is a major talent. He's only twenty one years old. Oh my God. All he's right, twenty one well. years old. And look at this. He's got a show uh, off Broadway, and um, he did a thing at uh, 54 Below that was sensational. No, he's he's quite a talent, and we're really going to hear from him. And we're not just saying that because he's a listener. Uh, <laughs> well, and I didn't know good. that so until you just yeah, told me. I that, didn't either. So. Yeah, but I'm glad. Well, I'm glad I liked it because <laughs> it's, really, ah. really, it's really good. And the script is just funny. It, uh, one yeah, of that the would be awkward is- if you didn't like it. Yes, it would be. But, you know, that's life. We have, <laughs> yeah, to, have to maintain oh, yeah. <laughs> journalistic integrity, right? Um, uh, one of the concepts is that uh, uh, one or both of these geeky guys, I'm not 100% sure, we're told uh, that they worked at a blockbuster video on Staten Island. And that, so this is, you know, so this is set quite some years ago uh, in the, in the, you know, still in the years of uh, probably even VHS and uh, and you know certainly DVDs certainly well below before Blu-ray and they're just um, they're just super fans of Star Wars um, and what happens is they need a girl uh, to be in the show and so they hire this girl played by e- Emily McNamara but it turns out that she um, has a, a, an ulterior motive because she considers the the Star Wars uh, movies to be sexist and to have other, you know, politically incorrect flaws. So she wants to sabotage the show initially. But of course, 
she gets won over during the course of the show. And it's it's just really delightful. I, as I may have mentioned, I, I first became aware of this Taylor Crosork a few weeks ago uh, when I saw him in Everybody Rise, the Joe Keenan show at Birdland. And he was so so funny and talented that, that I really wanted to see him in this show, which he is is one of the stars of, but also co-wrote. And he was great. And then I, uh, the other guy in it, Scott Richard Foster, it wasn't until the end of the show that I realized that I had seen him in a, one of the more recent editions of Forbidden Broadway. And Taylor also was involved with Forbidden Broadway at one point. Uh, Emily, I, uh, I don't think I've seen her in anything, but she was equally talented and so uh you know it's just just the three of them on stage uh and i i really really loved it i i'm um it's been running for a while and i i think it's continuing uh, i'm not sure if there's a closing date i i know it's through the end of the month at least uh maybe longer than that i i would absolutely recommend it as a really really fun time and uh here's an interesting thing i only uh really know the first three uh, Star Wars films, Star Wars films that were released, and the only one I really, really know well is the first one. Um, and I felt like a bulk, the bulk of the references were from the first one, uh, with maybe a few, a few references here and there to subsequent uh, ones. Jar Jar Binks uh, <laughs> comes right. in for uh, for you know well deserved uh, yeah, ridicule. You bet he does, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't think that uh, if you are avoiding seeing it because you think you're not a Star Wars geek, and you you'll miss a lot of it. I, I don't think that's going to happen. There, are, you know, the, some of the guy the, the guys use the Yoda voice uh, at at some point, and and it's really funny the way they do that. And there are other um, lines here and there that just that just come and go and and are quick for good laughs. I thought a, a, a small percentage of the the humor was was lame, but that's okay. I mean, the the uh, you know overall. It was it was mostly very clever and and a really good time. One interesting thing is it is a musical uh, with with new music, and it uh, my friend and I both remarked that it was very obvious that they went out of their way to use not a note of the John Williams music because ah. I think they they really really didn't want to get in any trouble with that. Although I think that. Um, you know, they would have been allowed to use a little bit of it as fair use. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what exactly the rules are on that, but um, but they didn't. I guess they just wanted to be safe rather than sorry. Uh, so I, I I'm very glad I went and I do highly recommend it. All right. So that is a musical about Star Wars over at the St. Luke's on 46th Street. It's playing through January 5th, 2020 right now. Ah. Ah. Okay. Uh-huh. So, and directed by uh, Michael and Tom Dangora, by the way. Yes, the, the both of them. I saw that yes. on their website. <laughs> yeah. This episode is being brought to you by Don't Call Me Young Lady. Her name is Carolyn Meyer, and at 84, she hates being called Young Lady. On October 27th, at the United Solo Festival, she will tell you why. Don't Call Me Young Lady is her raucous, raunchy, and emotionally engaging story of how she became who she is. Get your tickets today at www.unitedsolo.org. That's unitedsolo.org. All right, so Peter, you got over to see our dear dead drug lord. Dear dead drug lord. I have stumbled over that numerous times, but I hope I got it right that time. So the Women's Project is doing this play, and I'm a little surprised they're doing it because I don't think it really shows women in a very good light. Granted, these are young women. Granted, these are women between 15 and 20, I would say, uh, considering some of the things they say. Um, They're in a treehouse, and the set is fabulous, but I don't think there's ever been a treehouse that looks like this. Uh, It's it's amazingly constructed, and um, the tree would have to be uh, the size of the logo of Green Willow to uh, to accommodate a, a tree like this. So um, a, t- a tree house like this. So so anyway, the real problem with this play is that these women are are essentially looking for a hero, and they even talk about Hitler. 
being a consideration, but they um, finally decide that uh, Pablo Escobar is going to be the person that they're going to adore. And, hmm, you know, uh, <laughs> I think that's a little bizarre, but um, anyway, um, it's nicely directed by Whitney White, I'll grant you that, and certainly the four young women who are in it, Carmen Berkeley, Alyssa May Gold, Rebecca Jimenez, and Malika Samuel, are very good in what they do. I will say that um, One Girl in Glasses um, and a nerdy hairdo lets that define her. Um, So as they're um, all talking about their devotion to Pablo Escobar, they also reveal a great deal about themselves in this tree mansion, I should say, really. But um, they even are interested in a Ouija board, which is very bizarre to me. I mean, um, and when somebody questions that, uh, they're rebuked. Is this just a game to you? Which I think is um, really uh, bizarre. One person wanted to have the um, the club devoted to Charlie Manson. I mean, isn't this a little strange? Um, maybe Women's Project mission is to do plays like this to rid us of people like this. I don't know. Maybe that's what's supposed to be, that um, they want to show certain women in bad light so it won't happen again. I I, I just don't get it. Um, there's stuff about cutting yourself, um, which I think is really a problem as well. Um there's a nice speech about expecting um, a, a man in a terrorist, terrorist situation, but I will say that the real big problem with this play, I don't know if it's a problem really, but I mean, the real, there is a scene at the end of the play that is one of the most graphic and horrific I have ever, ever seen. And remember, I'm closing in on 12,000 plays. Um, so, It's so unpleasant and so awful that um, all that came before it, as problematic as it was to me in seeing women essentially belittled, um, it it just rubbed me quite the wrong way because of this graphic scene. So, So I found this a very unpleasant experience on many levels, I'm sorry to say. All right. So that is um – our dear dead drug lord. It's at the uh, McGinn Cassell, which is the WP and second stage of space up on uh, Upper West Side. And it's playing through October 27th. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Peter, you also got up to uh, Beverly, Massachusetts, where at the North Shore Music Theater, you saw Sunset Boulevard starring Alice Ripley. So tell us about this. What I love was that Alice Ripley got entrance applause. Now, I know that she's done a few um, TV um, series, be it um, streaming or um, network or what have you. I know that. But I really have a feeling that this was due to Next to Normal because she certainly uh, got a nice cult following as a result of Next to Normal. So um, I hate to really refer to ages, but um, the fact is that Alice Ripley is um, older now than Gloria Swanson was when she did the original movie. And it occurred to me, you know, in this era we hear that 70 is the new 50 and 60 is the new 40. You know, she just doesn't look old enough. Uh, she doesn't look old enough to be that desperate. Mm. So uh, so yeah, at one point she wears a wig that she looked very much to me like a slightly aging Jane Russell in her prime. I mean, so um, let her youth and beauty be her consolation that, um, that that's the situation. <laughs> um, so, however, you know, I, I'm going to say this, and I'm, I'm not thrilled to say this, but um, a lot of people said as, as Next to Normal wore on that um, Alice Ripley's voice had worn down. Well, it's rebounded wonderfully, if that's true. Again, when I saw her, she was terrific in Next to Normal. But I did hear as the run continued that um, the demands of the score really took their toll. But um, whatever it is, she's tanned, she's rested, she's back. Um, So there's no problem with the voice at all, especially with her two big songs, With One Look and, of course, As If We Never Said Goodbye. Um, Really, uh, you know, North Shore is in the round, and, you know, you do need that mansion, don't you? So what you had here is a Mick mansion, but um, they literally blocked off um, um, a big portion of the theater to to get that mansion there. So really, they were very devoted to this show. You know, of course, that um, Norma Desmond is wanted 
by uh, Hollywood, not for herself, because she's a faded star, or um, as Billy Wilder used to say, a fallen queen. Um, but um, they want her car. And you actually had, even though it's a small, small scene, they actually had that car roll on. Of course, that got applause as well. So, um, you know, Sunset Boulevard to me um, is a very good musical. I know people disagree with me entirely on this, but I think it's very good. This is the eighth time I've seen it. And um, I didn't have to go, but I wanted to go. And um, because any opportunity I get to see it, and there aren't that many, though Judy McLean, a big favorite of mine, is doing it now way out uh, on Long Island, far, far, far away at the Engerman Theater. But really, um, I think that Andrew Lloyd Webber did an excellent job of creating moody music that really fits right from that not quite overture, but prologue music. Uh, the music for the greatest star of all uh, is is very right in keeping with um, the time period that this uh, takes place. So. Um, Joe Gillis, the gentleman who played Joe Gillis, really had a quite wonderful voice. His name is Nicholas Rodriguez, and he really did quite good justice for the uh, um, for, to the role. It was a very funny moment. I don't know if anybody's done this. I've never noticed it in the previous times I've gone, but um, he um, he has a lyric about being in self-denial when um, the uh, two guys show up to repossess his car, and he put his hands in front of his uh, groin. Um, but... Um, so the one weird thing, which even cost an extra salary, is that the director, Kevin P. Hill, thought it would be a good idea to have Joe Double. What Joe Double means is you had um, a gentleman named Dominic Servideo play Joe alive. Um, I'm sorry, play Joe dead. Dead. He was the guy who was in the swimming pool. As the show began, there was a tiny little swimming pool. They didn't have water, but um, they did have a sunken um, uh, piece of the stage. That um, So anyway, uh, he would shadow uh, the actual Joe who does uh, the singing and acting. So he never said a word. He just walked around and observing the scene. And um, I, I, I thought it was a waste of a salary. And frankly, I didn't think it added anything to the show at all. But uh Maybe somebody else did. So, and if so, that's fine. Uh, little touches that were really quite nice. And that was, um, we didn't see the ape that uh, is being buried, but uh, suddenly when she was caressing this um, being that was under the um, little blanket, the arm popped out uh, because uh, she forced it out um, inadvertently. But um, but that's when we knew it wasn't a, a child. It was an ape. Um Alice wasn't as crazy as um, many um, Normans I've seen. What What is interesting, though, is you have to remember that she played Betty Schaefer in the original. And one has to wonder if she watched Glenn Close and Betty Buckley and Elaine Page and Karen Mason went on a number of times as well and said, hmm, I'd do it differently if I had the chance. And now she has the chance. Uh, so... Well, one thing I have to say about North Shore is they really go the extra mile, not just because of the mansion and the car, but they had about 100 blow-up pictures of Alice Ripley as Norma in very different poses right around the stage, um, again, in the round. And so um, no matter where you were, you saw pictures of her framed, you know, enormous pictures. Whenever we went to the mansion, three tiny little chandeliers dropped down. When we went to the uh, Hollywood set, um, a, a, a piece came down that said stage 17, stage 18. Um, uh, you don't need this, but they want to really create the atmosphere, and I think that's really quite wonderful. So um, I was very impressed with that. So, um, uh, I, by the way, uh, speaking of Betty Schaefer, I have to say that um, Lizzie Klemperer was excellent in the role and William Michaels whom uh, many of us uh, know from Wicked way back when uh, was Max and um, he was really really uh, sensational with his voice amazingly good um, full disclosure I'll give a shout out to Neil Meyer who um, wound up playing an important role in my play, God Shows Up, earlier this season. He played Cecil B. DeMille and um, did a wonderful job because Cecil B. DeMille, when, when Norma Desmond shows up in that um, scene, 
has to be tender to her. He really loved her. And um, while he feels he can't use her anymore, he really has great sympathy. It's not like, oh, you know, I've, I've outgrown her. She's a has-been, so what? I mean, that's in the movie too, of course. But it's very, very nice to see um, a, an actor portray that that way because the real Cecil B. DeMille was actually in the movie. So um, so I... I, I I think it's a very nice um, performance. I'm sorry that um, it's closing today, that um, those who haven't seen it won't see it. But I hope this isn't the end for this little production. I hope there's a way to the, that it can go on because I really think it does deserve to go on. And um, and remember, you know, there's uh, there's an opera where Norma has a mad scene. Well, um, she's very good in her <laughs> mad scene here at the end. Uh, very good indeed. Um and, um, well, anyway, a great success, and I'm very glad that I made the trip. Okay. So, as uh, Peter mentioned, it is closing today, but we'll have a link to that in the show notes. They have uh, a bunch of photos of Alice that Peter has referenced and uh, some other information about the show. And uh, who knows? Maybe we will see it in some sort of other incarnation. Michael. Two things quickly. I, I have not seen the show, but I did see a, a, a you know a B roll uh, mm-hmm. commercial for it, and I ha- I certainly agree about William Michaels. Uh, he sounded just fabulous in that excerpt that they had, which is no surprise to me because uh, he has a great voice. But boy, he sounded just great. And the other thing is um, quickly. I don't know if we have time to spend on this, but the great Diane Carroll. Oh yeah, uh, died, and and that was, I guess, her last great stage role. Uh, Norma in was it in Toronto? It was definitely Canada. Definitely Canada somewhere. Yeah, probably. And there, Toronto, yeah. yeah, and there are clips of that that you can see. Uh, but but just a little amusing thing is one of the obits uh, of her that I read. You know, these obits are prepared very quickly, and it talked about her brilliant performance as Norman Desmond. Oh. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, I, I think they fixed it quickly. So, uh, so that has been righted. Um, but check out those clips. Uh, well, of, you, know, yeah, Michael, you know, I mean, given that Bobby is going to be a woman in company soon here on Broadway, I mean, maybe it was Norman Desmond. Who knows? You know, well, so. also, I, yeah. <laughs> and I wrote, I wrote Norman. Is that you? Ah, <laughs> 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 Wonderful. Oh, uh, you know, uh, it's it's always so interesting to me when uh, uh, when major organiz- major major news organizations get this stuff wrong because made major organizations prep uh, sure uh, prep obituaries sure. years in advance and, right. and occasionally now and then accidentally release them while the person is still alive. Um, Right. So uh, that's crazy. But I have the obit for uh, for Diane Carroll from the New York Times uh, talks about her uh, film and stage career there. If anybody would like to read it, it's in the show notes. Right. All right. So, Michael, uh, you got over to uh, the library at Lincoln Center, uh, Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts Library, and you saw the Harold Prince exhibit that uh, we talked about a little bit about a few weeks ago while you were in Italy. So tell us, Mm -hmm. what was your thoughts on the Harold Prince exhibit? Oh, uh, that's great that you spoke about it. Yeah, it it was. uh, I was in Italy when it opened, so I wanted to get there. Uh, pretty soon after I got back, although it does run through the end of March. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you uh, folks, you have no excuse to miss this mm-hmm. and you have to see it. Mm-hmm. You have to see it, especially because it's also f- completely free. So uh, please uh, get to Lincoln Center. This is in the uh, Donald and Mary Onslacher Gallery, which is the gallery you get to as soon as you pretty much right after you enter the library from Lincoln Center Plaza. And I was warned ahead of time uh, by our mutual friend, Kevin McInerney, leave a lot of time to go through it if you want to if you want to be comprehensive, because the area of the exhibit is not that large, but the amount the content is just incredible uh, because there's all these letters and photos and um, uh, uh, memorabilia and uh, also lots of video interviews uh, and audio interviews just just kind of stuck all the way through the exhibit. And uh, on that note, um, 
I the, my only negative comment about the exhibit that I can think of offhand is that the for the interviews the people being interviewed were identified but not the interviewers even when they were people of note for example uh, we have Frank Rich interviewing Patricia Ziprot and he is not identified and then we have an interview of. Uh, Jerry Bach, Sheldon Harnick, and Joe Masteroff about She Loves Me, and the interviewer unidentified is Peter Felicia. So uh, I'm not, uh, you know, I looking think... thinner, hairier, <laughs> younger. <laughs> oh, what a painful clip that was to me. Anyway, go on. <laughs> well, I think you look fine. But anyway, <laughs> it was nice to see that, especially since it was such a surprise. Uh, you know, I'm sorry they didn't have one more line uh, to use to identify the interviewers. But anyway, uh, and by the way, Peter, I, I guess it looked like it was uh, not a public uh talk or anything it looked like something that was just arranged for the archives yes exactly it was done, yeah. uh, right there in, in the library so um yeah betty cohen uh, who we lost recently um right. asked me to come and do it and i was very glad and grateful to have the opportunity yes to get those three together uh, and i'm sure there were things they said during that interview that probably were never said anywhere else so it's really wonderful and that and the, and this exhibit is full of that that kind of wonderful stuff um uh, fun things like this roulette wheel <laughs> mm. this huge roulette wheel that prince had in his office to uh kind of um remind everyone that there are hits and there are flops <laughs> I thought I just loved that. Mm -hmm. um, and I was in his office once and I remember that, but it was great to see it again. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, uh, there's, it's right after you walk in, there's a recreation of, I, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be his actual desk that he used early on in his career. I, yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's amazing. It has papers on it with letterhead, you mm -hmm. know, from companies that, that have probably been out of business for mm -hmm. decades. And, and I, I was a little surprised that the, the lack of obvious security, I mean, I, I suppose someone could just take that stuff, uh, but that would be really nasty. And why would they want to do that? So hopefully they won't. And I guess if someone does that, that, you know, they have, they have replacements. Mm -hmm. So, um, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. So many, uh, so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful things. And, uh, I mean, I think I have a fair, uh, decent amount of knowledge of Prince's incredible career, but I, you know, I certainly learned a lot just from actually, I only made it through about half uh, on my first visit because I, I knew I, I had to be elsewhere. But I thought, well, let me at least start. Uh, if it's going to take me that long to go through, let me at least start now. And then I can always go back sometime between now and March 31st. Um, so I got all through only half. But I have to say one of the one of the most amazing things, and I actually uh, took a photo of it and posted it on Facebook because it's so amazing. Uh, it's a, a memo or letter to Prince on William Morris Agency stationery from uh, November 5th, 1962 uh, from an agent there whose name was Eddie Bondi. And this, uh, this, memo gives casting suggestions for what I guess at the time was being referred to as the shop around the corner, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is, uh, became, she loves me. And, uh, you know, it started out as a play called parfumery and then was made into a, a film called the shop around the corner, a non-musical film, and then later made into a musical film called in the good old summertime. So I don't know if, um, they were ever intended to try to call this the shop around the corner or if it was just a working title. But at any rate, um, I have to, <laughs> these are the casting suggestions. And I, again, I, I assume that these were all William Morris clients. So that's why mm. these names came up. All right. So for Amalia, we have Sandra church, mm -hmm. the, uh, who was the original mm -hmm. gypsy, gypsy. Mm -hmm. Barbara cook, who wound up mm -hmm. of course getting the role, Inga Swenson, Jane mm -hmm. Powell and Shirley Knight. Mm. Who does it? Are any of you aware that Shirley Knight had the kind of voice that could sing that role? Uh, no, no. I hope she could, but uh, no. I, <laughs> I that mean, was a surprise she... to me too. I saw this um, uh, notation um, that you're talking about there, and I, I felt the same way. Wow, Shirley Knight, go on. Well, who knows? Maybe she couldn't, and maybe that's why she yeah, didn't right. get it. Um, all right, George or uh, George Richard Basehart, Alan Case, Ed Ames. 
Earl Wrightson, Farley Granger. That mm-hmm. would have been really interesting. Bob Loggia and Peter Palmer. Mm-hmm. Little Abner. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Mr. Marichek, Edgar Bergen, Leon Ames, Leo Fuchs, David Opatoshu, Gene Raymond, Lou Jacoby. His name is written in. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah. He was a last yeah. minute addition, right? <laughs> um, K- a Kadai, whose name here is spelled K A D A R. Uh, maybe they changed it, or maybe the, this guy just got it wrong. Uh, Tyke Andrews, Jack Cassidy, who got the role. Uh, Donald Buka, Mark Bro, the choreographer. Right. Uh, Johnny Hayner, Hamer, Scott Merrill, and Hal Linden. Uh, Arpad, Camilo Carao, Gene Castle. Mm-hmm. And Michael Mann, Sipos Cesare Danova, Joe Bernard, Vincent Gardinia, Jules Munchen, and Johnny Myers. Um, Mrs. Marichek apparently was a character, yeah, a character, yeah, mm-hmm. at one point. And for her, the the suggestions were Jane Keane, Margaret Hayes, Virginia Gilmore, and Lisa Kirk. Mm. And then finally, uh, they have all these suggestions for Leona Ritter, uh, Dee Dee Wood, who was the choreographer with Mark Bro, mm-hmm. uh, Lois Hunt, Joan Eastman, Jan McCart, a familiar name. You're right, sure, from uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Pat Crowley, Marshall Levant, Arlene Galanka, mm-hmm. Tina Elg, Lillian Montevecchi. Yeah. <laughs> How delightful would she have been? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sylvia Miles, Louise O'Brien, Betty Madigan, Ellie Stone, and Beryl Tobin. So, I mean, there is just, you know, in that one document. It, it's just the, the mind boggles how interesting how, it does you know. boggle, especially if you think of Lou Jacoby were married to Lisa Kirk. I mean, you know, that just uh, doesn't, they don't seem like a logical couple to me. But of course, uh, the show does involve her uh, committing adultery. So maybe it, right. it would make sense. But right, yeah. Right. So I, I, anyway, um, please see this exhibit. It's a it's a fitting tribute to Mr. Prince. Uh, there's a note at the beginning that he cooperated fully with the exhibit. And of course, uh, when it was planned, uh, they, they did not know that he would be mm-hmm. gone uh, by the time it opened. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, because of his cooperation. It's just extra phenomenal. And it's just beautiful. And you have to see it. So. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and I was thinking about it, and then uh, Michael brought it up again that we have to get to it before March 31st, 2020, and I think to myself, why? Why do we have to get to it to <laughs> before March 31st, 2020? I mean, there should be a Broadway museum by this point. Oh, where well, yes. This should be a permanent yeah. exhibit type of thing. Mm, nice idea. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's not so much an idea as much as there's been talk about it in the last couple of years. There was an article, I guess, in Forbes or something like that about a company that is trying to bring a Broadway museum to uh, to New York right now. It's actually a, a traveling exhibit, uh, a, a Broadway uh, museum type of thing that was out in the on the west coast and they're trying to bring it to new york and uh set it up as a permanent exhibit here and this seems like uh uh it's something that should naturally be part of it uh, so yes. hopefully that'll uh that'll come to pass so uh before we get on to trivia and wrap up for the day. I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio I plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at Broadway Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was, what do Alvin, Bernie, Charlie, Ezekiel, and Wilmer have in common? And the answer is, they were all the people who were murdered by the Merry Murderesses uh, in Chicago. We hear about them mentioned in Cell Block Tango. So, Tony Janicki, of course, was the first to get it, followed by Sean Logan, Jake Leonard, Jeff Hickman, Josh Israel, Brigadude, Ingrid Gammerman, and Fred Abramowitz. This week's question. One of Stephen Sondheim's songs starts with a musical phrase from Edvard Grieg. Which is it? 
All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.